Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. This week, we have an interview for you conducted by our very own Mona with her friend Raphael. We realized last week after our conversation on Orlando and the shootings and the LGBTQ community that, in fact, I, we explicitly talked about the fact that all of us were white and hetero and that it would be helpful to have other voices involved in this conversation and hear other perspectives. And that's exactly what this interview is. So I won't spend too much time here in the beginning explaining what's going to be talked about. Uh, I just encourage you to keep listening to this particular interview. If you get to the end of it and you have questions, comments, or concerns for the show, you can always find all the ways to get a hold of us at irenacast.com slash feedback. And if you have anything to say to this particular episode, you can do that on the show notes at irenacast.com slash 69. So again, without any further ado, here's our interview this week with Raphael. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening in to another episode of Irenicast. This week, we have an interview with a friend of mine named Raphael. Hi, Raphael. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Raphael is a friend of mine from seminary, and I've just always enjoyed conversations with him. And I thought he would be a great person to hear from after our episode last week on Orlando. And I'll let Raphael take it away and tell you more about himself. Um, well, again, it's great to to be here. I've been listening to the the stuff and the work that you guys have been doing, and I think it's wonderful. So I'm I'm very flattered that you wanted to chat up with me about this. Um, Everybody, my name is Rafael, and um, uh, we've known each other now for a couple of years. I am uh, originally from Cuba, so I'm Cuban-American, um, although I spent uh, a chunk of my adolescence in Puerto Rico, and my parents lived there for about uh, over 30 years, and I called Puerto Rico home for all of that time. So I'm, I'm also half Puerto Rican in, in, um, in my upbringing and in my soul. And um, I'm a lawyer by training, and but I have been in doing practicing communications and, and government affairs in the corporate field um, and after working for the government for a couple of years, um, for many years now, and took time off to um, go to get a master's in theological studies and that's where we met. And I'm back in Miami now working full time again. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. And we talked about the fact that uh, it, it's been in a lot of conversations that um, it was Latino night at, at the Pulse nightclub. And so hearing from LGBTQ people of color in this particular instance is really important. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Another reason to have you on was just because I, I love everything you say. (laughs) (laughs) And I should also say, you know, I didn't make it part of my introduction because it's such an assumed fact for me, but uh, yes, I am gay and I came out when I was 21. So (laughs) that was a piece of the equation for being here. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So where do we start? What's it like being gay and Latino? (laughs) How do you ask that question? Uh, How do you ask that question? Um, Well, like, like we've uh, mentioned in in previous conversations, it's, um, it's difficult to speak on behalf of a whole group of people. And I'm, I'm certainly not here to speak, um, for others, just, uh, yeah, um, for myself and my own experience. And it is, uh, it is not an easy thing, you know, but like in every other context, it's easier for some people and more difficult for others. Um, you know, it, it depends on your background, depends on your family, depends on your religion sometimes. So, but it's still a very difficult thing. Our, um, Latino culture is very influenced by, um, our, um, religious traditions is very influenced by um, uh, what we would call in school patriarchy or in our culture machismo. You know, it's, um, I remember growing up as a kid in Cuba and then later in Puerto Rico and hearing, commonly hearing things like, um, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to a family is um, that one of the the kids is gay or lesbian. Um, Back then we weren't even talking about transgender. So um, I think it's definitely gotten better. It's gotten easier. Um, but 
it, it's still very difficult um, for many people. And even after they come out and families have gotten better about embracing it, um, but it still takes a lot of work and takes a lot of time. And sometimes it's work that is completed much more successfully than other times. Um, and certainly what's been happening recently has brought up the whole reality of what LGBT people go through. Um, and in particular, in the context now of pride celebrations and all of this um, uh, commentary on the horrible tragedy in Orlando and specifically highlighting, as you said before, the fact that it was Latino night. I think that's also brought the Latino face within the LGBT diversity up to the forefront, which is all... Um, relatively positive in in the midst of um, hugely negative and horrifying contexts. Before we started recording, I asked if you wouldn't mind sharing about how coming out has affected your personal relationships and your family, um, you know, especially growing up in a religious context. What was that like for you? The first thing that came to mind was actually the story about you know, when I, the first couple of years after I came out and you'll relate to this, um, you know, one of the ways in which my mom was a wonderful, um, amazing human being and whom I adore, um, one of the ways in which she began to cope with it was to begin to, she never told me this, but I could tell she was kind of praying it away. Um, not out of disgust, but out of a sense of concern, um, and, and love for me. And I, it came to a point where I found it deeply offensive and insulting. And I even considered, you know, taking a break from going home um, on vacation because it hurt so much. And I had a conversation with my dad about it. And my dad said, these are the tools that your mom has at this moment to show that she cares and to manage this situation so just try to accept it and love her for that and wow. i've never been able to forget that and so i've also had those moments this week when i just stay, i sit there and i go you know um I, are are people just being polite are they is this like the new thing to you know feel empathy and care about the lgbt uh, Q community and, and all of this stuff. And, um, and then I inevitably reached the answer, um, I'm most comfortable with, which is, um, people know the best they, well, most anyway, most people do the best they know how to with the tools they've got at the moment. And, um, and I think it's important to still teach people the value of our own experiences and to signal to them in which ways in which they may be missing the mark. But I think it's also important to let them in just like it's important to let our friends in and our parents in and our family. And even though it's imperfect and even though it's not perhaps the way we want it to be, or it doesn't come wrapped up in the packaging that we wished it would. Um, it's still a step in the right direction. And, and I think we need to remain mindful of that. I think that's, that's very gracious and wise. And I, I really like that. And I have seen both of those messages, you know, um, what we talked about on the last episode, um, people saying, let us be alone and bury our dead and grieve. And then on the other hand, where are you straight says people, why aren't you fighting for us? Um, and I think both of those messages are valid. I don't think anyone has the right to invalidate either one or privilege one or the, over the other. Mm -hmm. Can other people truly feel our pain? Can other people truly relate? Are their attempts at empathy authentic enough or authentic, period? Um, how do we discern all of that, and which um, overtures do we accept and which ones do we deny? And I've been, because I've engaged a little bit in that conversation over the last few days with some people, 
Um, and actually, uh, most of them were not even Latino, but they were saying, um, you know, they were speaking from, from a place of righteous anger. And I could understand what they're saying. And they were saying, you know what? Save it. Um, and they were saying this to the larger um, straight world and saying, let us mourn and do our thing by ourselves. And I can relate to that on a personal level because I'm, I tend to be a private person and, you know, about my deepest emotions, I guess. Although I, I speak very freely about emotions in general. And, um, and when I'm going through difficult times, you know, that's something I need to do. I need to find my space. I need to find my corner, my safety cocoon. And um, a lot of times I don't even allow really close friends into that space for a little bit. And then I actually have my good friends will be knocking on my door and saying, hey, too long. What's going on? You know, let us in. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I thank them for that. But I can relate. I can relate to the need for space um, and to, you know, to, to be with your own, um, even if not on your own. But I also think there's danger in that. Yeah, I, I resonate with the need for space, too. That makes total sense to me. And certainly we would never want to be in this moment, in this time, in our, in our context, in these conversations, um, be invasive. That's the the last thing anyone wants is to do further damage. But it does raise a really interesting set of questions around politics in this time. There's a struggle where politics and grief are getting pitted against each other unnecessarily, it seems like. Um, you know, because of the news cycle we have today, it's so fast. And if an event happens and we take a couple weeks off to 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 be alone and bury our dead, you know, it's di very difficult to come back from that and get the political momentum to get things mm -hmm. rolling. So True. it's really unfortunate that that times of terror have to be utterly politicized, but it almost seems necessary in some ways. I don't know. I don't know that it is that it isn't necessary. I think asking ourselves whether it's necessary or not is useless and irrelevant because it is. It is, it is a fact, and, and I, I'm a big proponent of facing reality and dealing with facts. So I think it is. It is politicized, whether we wish to weren't or, or not, it is. And, um, and we, we got to jump right, right in there. You know, I actually I took my time for a few days um, when people started hinting at the, the, um, the, the, um, the Scar Omar's um, possible um, issues or struggles with his sexual identity. And I was like, hold off, you know, let's, you know, I haven't really seen anybody come forth and actually say that they were with him or whatever. We now have seen a bit of that. I actually read something about that a day or two ago on NPR. Um, but I was taking my time because I, I didn't want to go there yet. Um, I was, I was, digesting it um from the political the gun control the terrorist the islamophobia perspectives and that was already enough on my plate um and then i found myself um you know really having to dive into the whole um phobia and internalized phobia perspective and to be honest with you i out of all of those heart-wrenching angles the one that tore at me the most was that one um because i have seen it i have seen it over and over again i lived it i remember when i was in college and i was barely 17 18 and um i went to a very liberal school at brandeis university and i was hanging out with one of my best friends and we were at this party and all of a sudden i saw two men dancing next to us and I was 18 at the time, and I had to get up and leave the party because I hadn't owned up to my own truth by then, which I did by the time I was 21. Um, and ever since then, you know, we think, oh, the generations have changed, and people now in their 20s are much freer. And, you know, they are, but they aren't. I still see a lot of people, I see it in the streets, I see it at the gym, I see it at work. I see it at church. I see it on airplanes. I see it everywhere. Um, you know, 
men and women, but obviously mostly men who, who are, I can tell from the way they look at me, from the way they behave and the family that they have trailing along with, with them, that there is that huge level of, of, um, dissonance in their lives. And I have seen that, um, play out in very destructive ways. And so, um, that, that was an angle in the last couple of days that has really, that has really hit, hit me close. And, you know, even, um, yesterday I'm now in the corporate environment and I, I should say, I'm here discussing this with you representing myself exclusively. I'm not here on behalf of any organization or any corporation and nobody's paying me anything to say anything here. Um, but I do work for a place where, um, you know, that has gotten a hundred percent rating from human rights campaign over the last seven years for its inclusion of LGBT employees. But here in Miami, which is where the headquarters for Latin America are, um, it's not quite the same story. And so yesterday I had the opportunity to get in front of a a hundred people from our office and give a a quick presentation. And I forget now what it was that I said, but I referred to my being gay in sort of the same way that I usually do most of the time. Um, It's just very matter of factly. And and I was making a joke or something. And then I got a note. I got an email last night from this woman who moved here. She's from Argentina. And she's married to another woman, and she moved here recently, let's say in the last six months or so. And um, and she was thanking me for bringing this joke. And I, when I say joke, it was like I, w- I wasn't making joke of being gay. I was making a joke and and saying it as a gay man and, and making everybody laugh. Um, and she was thanking me for it, and and then she started referring to the fact that her perception was very different um, and that she felt like she was back in the closet and she was having to relive all of those emotions that she had gone through in the past. And then with everything that's happened in Orlando in the last week and a half. And, you know, it just, it, it all brought it back to me that, you know, the, the, the largest issues are at the same time, the most personal. And, um, and I've been thinking a lot about, Harvey Milk and that wonderful phrase that he said, which is the most, I forget what if the term he used was political or um, um, daring act of rebellion any um, LGBT person can do is actually come out. And, um, and I keep thinking that maybe if this um, disturbed man had had an opportunity to do so, um, Perhaps 49 people wouldn't have gotten killed. So with this particular terrifying event in Orlando and the self-hatred and internalized violence that you're describing, like, what do you make of that as someone who has come out and as someone who is, as I know you, very proud to be gay and someone who embraces yourself? How do you interpret that? How do you... How do people get past that? Um, well, interpreting is, is, um, is, I think, at least for me, easier um, than explaining how people get past it. It's hard to answer how people can get past it. There are times when I look at somebody and they show themselves to be the kind of person who would be able to get past it rather easily because their parents um, and their background is relatively accepting and liberal because their own views are very accepting and liberal and so are their friends and their environments, and yet they don't. It's very, very difficult um, to second guess what is in somebody's heart or history um, and what the exact nature of their fears are. But in, in interpreting that aspect of this tragedy, I just see, I, I see it uh, congruently. I think that there are many forces at work here. I think from what I've read, I'm no expert, but from what I've read, it sounds like this person was prone to, to, to certain levels of violence, was 
somebody who was um, not certainly not very comfortable or happy with himself uh, on many on many levels. And it showed in the way he treated other people, including the women in his life, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are a lot of forces at play. But the one force of, that we were speaking about, which is the internalization of hatred, um, it's 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 very it's very um, easy to understand. I think it's uh, you know it's whenever you hate something in yourself so strongly, um, and you haven't yet owned that hate, um, it's it's relatively commonplace to see how that can get then misdirected at the very people who remind you of that part of you that you're not yet ready to own. I've seen this many, many, many times in friends, in mentors and relatives, professors, priests. Um, um, in, in fact, I've discussed it many times with them. And even, you know, within the context of um, the, our faith and people who are very religious from the Catholic to the evangelical, um, there have been many times where I think, mm, you know, and we see it in history, you know, open up the paper and you see people who are, have spent a, a lifetime in a career demonizing LGBTQ people. And then all of a sudden they find out that they've been leading a double life. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 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 it's very common, very common. But the one other thing about it, um, what you were referring to, uh, you used the word unique. And here I want to, to make a point that perhaps is not um, as popular and when we go through these through these tragedies. And it's a point that I've had to learn being the son of, being a, a Cuban-American immigrant myself, but also being the son of a generation of Cuban-American immigrants who hold very dearly and very tightly to their sense of loss um, over their own histories in, in the, in the early sixties, um, in the country. And what I'm getting to here is that what I always tell them is we don't own the exclusive rights to pain or to suffering or to tragedy. You know, this is affecting us right now and it's good that we own it and it's good that we face it. And it's good that we spell it out for what it is. And it's good that we try to address it as Americans, as LGBTQ people, as Latinos. But it's also good to remember that this stuff goes on all the time, everywhere. You know, and we continue to live rather insulated lives, um, watching Apple TV um, and forgetting that there are hundreds of thousands of refugees um, that are living in misery right as we speak, and that there are thousands of LGBTQ people who are getting thrown off of rooftops and told that they're going to be stoned to death in other countries in Africa and being told the same thing in Russia and being told the same thing in Guatemala or in a remote area of Mexico. Um, and that there are other people also who are not LGBTQ who who face this as well by virtue of you know and here yeah with, I'm not going to get too academic but um, you know it's it's I always go back to to the mimetic theory of Gerard you know the othering the scapegoating of the other um, that that seems to be always so embedded in the way that we socialize unfortunately. And, um, and so that's why to me, it's important to mourn. It's important to applaud and accept who you are, but it's also important to remain open to solidarity. The ones, the one that we are called to extend to others when we are not terrorized, but also the ones that others feel compelled or at least inclined to share with us when we are terrorized. Um, because if we don't do that, then, then the terror wins. That's powerful. That's really powerful. And I, I'm thinking in context of what you said a, a few minutes ago about owning your own hate. I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone put it quite like that, but that's, that's a really interesting way to put it. And I think perhaps we can't move into any kind of solidarity or real empathy unless we 
face the hate that blinds us um, that we've that we've inherited that we've adopted even without meaning to. Absolutely. I mean, it was. Um, um, I think yesterday or the day before that um, that I was reading this amazing um, sermon, um, and I think I might have shared it um, with with a few people um, on Facebook. And um, it talked. It talked about that. It was um, what's her face, Nadia uh, Bolt Weber, and she was talking about how her first instinct is to want to demonize the other, you know, and I think that, that, that happens to all of us. You know, I, I, I get furious when I hear what Trump has done, has said, I get furious when I see that we have an opportunity to do some very basic common sense things about gun control in this country. And still you have, 40 something senators last night just basically saying, Nope, we're not going to do it. Um, it's right to get furious and there's, there's a, there's a righteous place for that anger. But I think it's also, I don't know, perhaps not everybody feels as inclined to consider this perspective, but my being Christian perhaps informs some of it for me. I need, I, I am commanded to get past it. And, wow. and I, wow. I am commanded to, doesn't necessarily mean that I approve it. It doesn't necessarily mean that I applaud what Trump is. It doesn't necessarily mean that I condone voting for him, which I consider to be very dangerous at this point in time in our history. Um, but it, it compels me to seek the humanity that's buried deeply in there. Um, you know, the... It's, I forget who it is now that said the the bullies are afraid too, and um, you know that doesn't mean that we sit there and you know say oh well you know let's give them a break. It doesn't. Um, there are causes and effects and actions and consequences. But I think if we if we stay in the retributive justice angle of things and don't push ourselves into more solidarity and um, into a place of greater spiritual mag, what's the right term? Magnum, magnanimity, magnanimous. Now my 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 la- magnanimity. Magnanimity. Magnan- I don't know. <laughs> Magnan- <laughs> You're making me sound I knew bad. what you meant. I knew what you meant. <laughs> well, nah, if we don't force ourselves to get there, um, you know, we're we're missing half the trip. That's that's so good. That's so so good, and that's a good reminder for me too because my anger feels so overpowering. Sometimes, you know, even to myself, I just, it's so much easier to find a party to blame. It's so much easier instead of looking at how things are interconnected, how everyone's complicit, what we could all do better. You know, it's, yeah, I I think, I think you're right. I think it does mean resisting almost an animalistic instinct to find an enemy somewhere and, and kill them, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's what our enemies do. You know, it's it's what a whole camp of this country is doing with Muslims. Um, and we could stop there, but that wouldn't be the complete story either. Because if you think about it, it's also what a lot of Muslims um, do to the LGBTQ communities within their midst. And it's a lot of what the Catholics do to the LGBTQ community in our midst. Um, so it again, you know, going back to that othering and that scapegoating and that 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 need um, that often goes hand in hand with with the righteous anger to place others at a distance um, is is valid, is absolutely valid. But um, you know, I've, I've, if we stay, I, I just think that if we stay, get stuck in that righteousness all the time um, and Trust me, I've I speak from experience. Um, it it you we don't we don't we really don't get to the other side. We don't get to the mountaintop if we don't if we get stuck there. Um, you know, it's like going again to the internalized hatred. It's it's understanding. I, I think it was also Maya Angelou who said something like, um, 
being human means that nothing human can ever be foreign to me. Wow. Wow. And that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. (laughs) I will agree with you. And, and, you know, and and as you're talking about this, I'm going back to the Bible and thinking how many times in my life have I heard the words, love your enemies to, to such a degree that I almost inoculated against it. But really thinking about what that means for real, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you and beating your swords into plowshares. What that actually means is like really hard, painstaking work. It's, it's work that requires you to go beyond like your very basic instincts. Um, and like you're saying, to push past it, to push past it and to still reach out in love. And that's, that's, it's simple, but it's so, um, it goes against the grain, you know? It's hugely transformative. And I think that's the reason, you know, why the, the figure of the, even just historically, even if we leave theology aside, the figure of Jesus was so powerful um, and has remained so influential to this day is because it goes exactly against that grain. It goes exactly against the scapegoating. It goes, you know, and again, I keep going back to, to Gerard and his mimetic theory and all of that, because I think it really is onto something. And um, I don't, I don't mean to give a lecture here now, but it's all about, uh, he, 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 starts from an anthropological premise that we learn to desire from observing others and that the social context precedes us and it is through others that we learn to desire and cover things. And then as a result of that, we the way that we socially deal with conflict and pressure is by scapegoating. And so we agree to scapegoat a third or fourth and then that scapegoated victim gets banished from from the society order is maintained and an understanding of 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 what's happened also gets maintained um a a preservation of of the of the common narrative if, if you will and um and then he goes on theologically to say well you know jesus was actually the one scapegoated victim who actually kind of you know allegedly comes back to tell the story and tells the story and still doesn't condemn the ones that were scapegoating him in the first place. I've never heard that interpretation before. I've not studied Gerard, but that, wow, that's really powerful. It's powerful, but it's incredibly difficult to do. I mean, forget it. It's just like (laughs) we can spend 40 lifetimes trying to do it. It's just not, not easy. Not but we, we have a, we have a model to strive toward, I suppose you could say, and we have each other, you know, and I, th- I think it's, it's easy to, easy to forget in such an individualistic society that we're, we're really meant to be with each other and figuring things out together. We don't have to be alone in this. Um, yeah. And it just takes me, you know, even, even just beyond that one example, I mean, just look at history. We, we've had a lot actually of people, you Look at the civil rights movement and look at all the people that got dragged, um, beaten, fire hosed, you know, uh, beaten up by dogs. And they they never raised a fist. Um, there's something very, very powerful in that. And I, I always go back to that, and especially in my in my world is with words. I. I'm very, um, I can be very drawn to, to be cruel and lash out in my words. Um, and that's my favorite way to scapegoat and, and to other, um, and to distance myself and to put myself up in the pedestal of righteousness. And I think there are instances such as the last week where we, have to distance ourselves where we have to proclaim our truth loudly and where we have to condemn evil also very loudly. But I think that's only half the journey. That's a really, really great reminder for all of us, including myself listening. Um, and that's a good, that's a good challenge as well. 
how did this impact you? You said you, um, you had maybe some connections to the community in Orlando. Is that right? Well, yeah, maybe the, the first impact I was, I was referring to is, you know, when I woke up and I heard Orlando and gay, um, nightclub, the first thing I thought of is, oh, do I know anybody? Because as you mentioned, yes, I grew up as a teenager. I grew up in Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico was a place that I called home for over 30 years, even though I was moving around and living in a lot of other places. And so I, I know a lot of people from Puerto Rico who have actually, who live part-time in Orlando or who have moved, especially given the, the, the economic issues in, in the island over the last couple of years and the very dire situation there. A lot of people have moved um, to the Orlando area. Um, there's a very large Puerto Rican population there. So I immediately thought, oh, I wonder if I know anybody. Um, and so then I thought, well, no, those are mostly probably people in their 20s and you're in your 40s. So maybe there isn't that much commonality. But, you know, I immediately thought of that and actually reached out to a friend, like I said, who's from Puerto Rico. And she and I have been really good friends for a long time who lives down here in Miami. And I asked her, I said, do you know anybody? Uh, do we know anybody or do we know of anybody who's been who's been affected by this? And um, and and we didn't. Um, but obviously felt very close to it by virtue of the fact that it's Florida, but mostly Latino Florida. And I live now in Miami, which is basically Latin America and the United States. I mean, I had a friend who came here to visit a few months ago and she was like, oh my God, nobody speaks English down here. Um, yeah, actually, I was there a few months ago too. And oh, that's I, right. You were. It wasn't me. I was, <laughs> you were talking with <laughs> Yeah, we had trouble taking a cab sometimes because we didn't speak Spanish. So I thought it was a delightful place, very like artistic and wonderful. Anyway, that's an aside, yeah, but really uh, enjoyed visiting. Um, it's it's a fun it's a fun and happy place, and um, and very very Latino. But so I think that um, you know it. One of the first things I did, for example, was you know I I actually went to get my parents that day and we were going to church and I told them about it while we were in the car. And I said, let's see if the priest brings this up in, in during mass today. Thankfully he did. Cause otherwise I would have gotten really angry, probably got walked out or something um, as I've been known to do. And, um, and then after that, we, we started getting more and more information and then that led to a conversation between me and my parents about it. And then also led to several conversations with other Puerto Rican friends who are living in Puerto Rico and also here. And, um, and some of those conversations, actually, um, one friend said something which I thought was really insightful. He said, well, if not that there is any silver lining in any of these atrocious um, situations, but he said, if, you know, it, if anything, I forget how he phrased it, but he said something like the the rest of the world is getting to see a different face from what they normally consider the the gay white male in the United States. Um, you know, and they're getting to see um, the the Puerto Rican um, community, gay community, or LGBT community in in Orlando, and that 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 creates greater greater visibility. And I think there's there's truth to that, um, but I, like I said before, you know, it's just um, it it's an opportunity to see it, but to also see that um, somebody, some white gay guy in Maine or straight white woman in Oregon um, may be wishing to to extend love to that community and like we were saying before it's it's okay for the community in orlando to say you know let we're gonna mourn ourselves but i also thought it was really really beautiful to see them come together and um and actually accept the attention and the love that they were getting from other places now having said that it was also infuriating to see how it wasn't getting attention and love from certain places who, you know, immediately wanted to just 
stick it within the narrative and the paradigm of terrorism and ISIS and 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 that. Yeah, there I, I've seen some pretty strong critiques that some news outlets and pundits like are refusing to recognize that it was a gay nightclub, like not even mentioning that or saying that. I don't know if they don't they they think that would make them part of the quote unquote gay agenda or something. I don't know, but it it seems like what better way to disrupt the narrative that being gay is like a bored rich white boy thing, which is to like to name a ter- terrible stereotype that it's some kind of choice or that people or whatever people think, then just tend to offer, you know, like real stories of, you know, people from around the globe who are gay and who have not chosen, but are likely very proud of who they are. And we're celebrating that night with their friends and out to have a good time. And, and that was taken from them. And so I, I think to me, it seems like it, it really does disrupt a narrative that people want to tell themselves that, that the gay lifestyle is a quote unquote choice, right? The quote unquote gay lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I'm using a lot yeah. of air quotes with my fingers yeah. right now. But. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, I saw that too. And uh, I forget who it was that said it like, Oh, it wasn't a gay club. It was a Latino club. And immediately I thought, okay, here we go into the hierarchy of acceptance. So in this person's um, limited understanding of the universe, it's somewhat okay or better to be Latino than it is to be gay, number one. And then number two, it was, um, you know, I also thought this is such a blatant attempt to rob a community of pain. And then I said, why is that? And I said, then I thought, well, because if you rob a community of the opportunity to express and own a particular pain inflicted upon them, then they will have a right to be angry about it. And then they will have a right to demand that they be treated equally. And this person is probably not comfortable with that outcome. So he goes to the root and wants to basically say, well, you don't even have a right to be angry because it wasn't really targeting you. It was targeting Latinos. I even saw some other stuff in the last couple of days about all these conspiracy theories of people that are coming up and saying that people that were that survived the attacks were actually actors. Have you seen this? What? Yes. They've they've all of these conspiracy theories have begun to surface saying that um, a woman who survived the attack was actually a Fox intern who was acting it all out and was planted in order to elicit sympathy for the LGBT community. I'm telling you, the stuff that they're (laughs) coming up with is just out of control. I can't believe that people will go to that extent to try to explain away this. I mean, it's so obviously not a conspiracy that's i don't what what <laughs> oh i had a thought hold on a second <laughs> i'm so i'm so frustrated just hearing that that like it like shoved all the other thoughts out of my mind <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah. Um, wow i'm actually looking it up now yeah oh here it is um orlando shooting survivor harassed by online conspiracy cooks as a quote crisis actor in a staged event oh my god that poor person is probably completely traumatized and that's the last thing that they need like wh- why yeah. would people be so cruel her I, name is patience carter oh god yeah well what you know i was going to ask you it seems like and i've been hearing a lot of conversations around the, the term pink washing meaning um now that there's a relative increasing acceptance or there's a perception of increasing um, acceptance of uh, corporations getting on the the gay pride bandwagon. So, like now, if you go to gay pride events, you'll see corporations, mm-hmm. you know, advertising, and they and people have termed this pink washing, meaning um, corporations who are really not LGBTQ friendly or inclusive, kind of pretending to be so so that they can build their brand. Um, but I wonder if this the thought that occurred to me is if this event had happened twenty or thirty years ago. I wonder if the public uh, response would have been different and how it would have been different. Um, And 
I've talked to several people who have no idea about the history of, of violence against LGBTQ people, even in the last century, let alone glo- in the U.S., let alone globally or throughout time. But, you know, people don't a lot of people don't know what Stonewall was. A lot of people um, mm-hmm. don't know that history at all. And so they see this as an isolated event. A lot of gay people don't know that. A lot of gay people, young gay people are only now beginning to to know that. A lot of, you know, I have asked um, quite a few now that I spent time in Boston and had the chance to to meet a lot of um, gay men in their um, in their 20s, if they knew what ACT UP was, and they didn't. Um, but going back to your previous point, I think the answer is yes. I think if this had happened 30 years ago, the response would have been, very different. Um, and I do think that there is progress. Um, and the proof point I have for that is the AIDS epidemic. Because had it not been for ACT UP, and for the first six to 10 years of the epidemic, when thousands of gay men were dying, um, it was either gay men or um, drug addicts, as it is now better known the 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 entire uh, country ignored it the government refused to even utter the words hiv or aids for a year and were actually advised not to use it because it didn't matter that the people that were getting killed and annihilated by this virus were people that didn't give a shit about so Yes, I think that if this had happened in the 80s or in the 90s, um, we would have seen a different response. And I think that the response now, however pink-washed it may be, um, is better than it would have been 30 years ago. And um, however ill-fitted the motivations, whether corporate or otherwise, I'd rather take it, take the progress over the last 30 years than not take it. And I'd rather look forward to the progress that's to come in the next 30 than stay stagnant where I'm at now. Yeah. It it reminds me of something you said earlier about empathy, something around the, you know, sometimes we can't know what valid empathy is or isn't. And we just have to accept the expression and sometimes not, maybe not question people's motives. Would you agree with that? No, I think it's okay to question it. it. You know, I I even told I did some of my own personal writing over the last few days about this, and I said um, on a particular day that I was feeling really angry, and I had been reading about the Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi and how all of a sudden with Anderson Cooper she was trying to sound all LGBTQ friendly when we know she wasn't. Um, and I was writing about this, and I was saying, you know, um, something to the extent of you don't fool us you know even if you're more polite about it even if you're more inclusive even if you've had no choice but to accept the crumbling logic of your ill-fitted laws and even if you've had no choice but to grant us equal rights in some realms we still have further to go you still deep down inside and this is part of what i was writing you deep down inside are still glad that you're not quote-unquote one of them. And, um, you know, it's the same argument that I use with people who say, oh, well, the Catholic Church will never marry same-sex couples. And I say to them, well, you know what? I don't need them to. Um, it'd be great, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm not planning on getting married myself, but I, I don't need them to. And where I'm getting with all of this is that, that it is okay to question their motivation, but at the, it could, you get to a point where you cannot do that with everybody because, again, nothing that is human can be foreign to me. And we're all capable of deceit and we're all capable of manipulation and we're all capable of hypocrisy. And so at the end of the day, what matters is the people that are closest to you and the people that affect your life, such as your employers, and the people that, you know, enact and pass laws that we need to make sure are fair and that continue to grant us the space that we deserve as equal citizens in the country. And whether the person signing that law does it gleefully or resentfully, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much as long as the law is passed. That's very interesting coming from you in particular because you're an attorney. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, that, that's interesting to hear your take. Like you, you, um, you can see the, the long game of that action, you know, and I think a lot of us get stuck in the, well, this person's doing this begrudgingly. We don't want them on our team. We don't want them fighting for us because, or, or whatever, you know, um, well, if we if we do that, you know, we 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 would have um, an ever dwindling, perhaps not, but a, no, that I should take that back. I was just going to say a dwindling number of allies, and um, and that's not necessarily true. I think genuine allies do do come forth and are built and evolve. Um, but, you know, for strategic purposes, um, I think it's always important to get all the help that we can get. And then for personal and moral and emotional purposes, it does make a difference that people mean what they say. Um, and I think that's where I would draw the line, you know? Yeah, that's that, that's helpful. But But politically, you know, people have to make all kinds of alliances to get things done. And I think it's easy to forget that this stuff society gets more humane and safer for everyone when activists take up that work. I mean, it's not, I think a lot of us feel disempowered on a regular basis and it just seems like um, issues go into some big machine and then they come out prepackaged as legislation or policy on the other side and then culture gets affected, but that's not, re- that's not all how it works. It's actually real people doing that and real people changing their minds and real people having conversations and getting, you know, rubbing shoulders with each other and, um, and and grappling socially, culturally together on how could we be doing this better? And so all of us are needed in that work, even from a molecular level up to a state level. Raphael, thank you. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And I learn so much every time I talk to you. So I'm tremendously grateful that you uh, gave your time to us and we hope to have you back sometime maybe. I, w- I would love that. And you're incredibly, incredibly gracious. Um, you always have been. And thank you for inviting me and just having an opportunity to discuss these things with you. I, I'm in awe of you and what you do and uh, what you'll continue to do. So I'm glad that I'm staying close to it. I'm feeling the love. I'm feeling the love. <laughs> you're awesome. Good. All right. You have a great day. And everyone listening also have a great day. And we'll see you back here next week. 